you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. In Romans chapter 4, we are told, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, and not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. In Galatians 3, we read, those who believe are children of Abraham. And a couple of verses later, so those who have faith and are are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. In James chapter 2, we are told Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. This occurs two other times, this time in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 when Jehoshaphat is praying, O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And then in Isaiah 41, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. In a confrontation recorded in Matthew 3 between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he was out there preaching and baptizing people and they decided to come out and see what was going on. He said to them, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And then in a troubling confrontation, and maybe it's troubling to me, between those who believe in Jesus and Jesus, which is very striking. This is in John 8. To the Jews who, be, who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus responds, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you that what I have seen in my father's presence and you do not, and what you have heard, you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. Who is this Abraham, who is the father of us all, who is a man of faith, who is the friend of God? Um, Who is this Abraham? There are the three Abrahamic faiths that claim him as a patriarch. In Judaism, he is the father of Isaac, the grandfather of Jacob, and then his descendants. Uh, Christianity, as we've been reading from Romans and from Galatians. In Islam, He is considered also one of the prophets. His name is Ibrahim in the Quran, where he is mentioned at least 170 times. So who is this Abraham? Who is this man? It is my hope that in the weeks to come, we will come to understand who he was, why he is important to our faith, and why he is important to the world. Where to begin? Well, Abraham, or Abram, as he was initially known, first shows up in Genesis chapter 11. Um, 
And to understand his place in God's plan for humanity, we have to go back because there are the 11 chapters that come before he shows up. Um, Just to clarify something, the Bible is not designed primarily to provide information to satisfy our inquiring minds. We want to know certain things. Instead, what we find is the story of what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do in human history, and specifically about the issue of evil. We saw this when we went through the series on evil. Um, The story of Abraham is critical to this. It is key to this. It comes in part in response to the three problems of evil that came up before this. Um, The call of Abraham, as we'll see in a few minutes, is God's solution or the beginning of God's solution to the problem. And what is the problem? Well, there were three of them. The first is in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The second was human wickedness in Genesis 6 and 7. And the third was arrogance, as we see in the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. The first appearance of evil is in the story of Adam and Eve and how they disobeyed God's command and they ate the forbidden fruit. What is fascinating about this story is what we are not told. Like, why was there a snake in God's creation? And why would it use its cunning in that way? We're not given an explanation for this. Instead, we're given a brief analysis of the role of deception. The serpent deceived Eve. The way in which the excuses came rather easily. Adam's like, it's the woman's fault. The woman's like, it's the serpent's fault. But the fact is, each one bore their responsibility. And we're told what God did about it. He judged the evil. And in fact, there was judgment. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. The serpent is told that he will crawl on his belly and that this woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. God makes sure that Adam and Eve can't come back. He doesn't simply kick them out of the garden. He makes sure they can't come back where he has a cherub on um, the sides of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep them away from the tree of life. The story isn't over, however, as we know. God has not abandoned them. He clothes them with the skins of animals. And after they leave, uh, Eve conceives, and she gives birth to a son. And she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. God has not abandoned the human race. And yet this first son that she bore, Cain, became the world's first murderer. The sign of God-given life carries with it now the equally God-given curse of death. And if you look at Genesis chapter 5, over and over and over again it says, and he died, and he died. Gives a list of names, how long they lived, and he died. God judged evil. The second appearance of evil is in chapter 6 and 7. It's a story that leads up to the flood. We read to you from uh, chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. 
And so God judges the evil and sends a worldwide flood and wipes out the human race and much of the animal kingdom at that point. And yet, as there was after he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, there is an act of grace. He chooses Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, put them in the ark with the animals to preserve humanity and God's creatures. By the way, if you look at the story, there's nothing that indicates that God thinks that somehow Noah and his family are special. They are human beings. They are fallen as well. And after the flood, we do find the story of uh, Ham, I'm uh, sorry, Canaan. No, it's Ham, his son, uh, dishonoring his father. Um, the human race is still in trouble. It's still in trouble. And we find this in chapter 11. God has preserved the human race through Noah, his three sons and their wives. And yet these people say we need to preserve ourselves so that God cannot judge us again. And we have the Tower of Babel. This is in chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Human arrogance sought to build a tower to make a name, a reputation, and to create security. All of this apart from the Creator. God's not a part of their plans. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The irony, I think, should be noted. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Babel is in Hebrew sounds like the word for confused, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. So how did God respond? He comes down, he judges their evil, and he does it in a way that might seem, in fact, strange um, I mean with Adam and Eve he kicked him out of the garden with Noah he sent a flood but here he confuses their speech he does something about it by the way he doesn't just say well these people these crazy knuckleheads what are they doing um, no he in fact does judge and he does so by confusing their speech and now we have multiple languages so that people from different parts of the world cannot understand each other and he's scattered the human beings all over the planet. What we see is that evil must be judged. God made a beautiful world. He saw that it was good and Adam and Eve's sin tainted that. It brought it into ruin. And then we have the flood starting all over again. And then you have Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves apart from God. 
Just a side note here, some people might see what God did to the people of Babel as bizarre and paranoid, that somehow he's afraid of what they might accomplish. Yeah, I I think that's simply not the case. God knows what he's doing when he deals with evil. So what do you do? Three times evil has sort of reared its ugly head and has brought destruction. What is the solution? The solution is found in this man we now know as Abraham. Initially he's known as Abram and we'll get to this as we go through the series when his name was changed. But it is through this man, Abram. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Genesis. You have the first, the creating of the world. Adam and Eve. Then you have the recreation of the world in Noah and his family. But now we have, in fact, a new beginning of the chosen people of God through the person of Abraham. If you look at verse number one of chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Things to consider as we go through this passage. First of all, we started at verse 1 of chapter 12, but Abram is actually mentioned toward the end of chapter 11, which gives a genealogy of the three sons of Noah. The third one is Shem, the Semitic people, and it goes specifically to Abram. So if you look at chapter uh, 11, Verse 24, when Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. In other words, this is his genealogy. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, a character who will show up as we go in our study. While his father was still Terah was still alive, Haran died in the Ur of the Chaldees, in the land of his birth, land of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren; she had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So what are we told in these verses? That Terah is the father of Abram, okay? That Haran is the father of Lot, show up again in our study. Abram married Sarai, okay? We'll find out in chapter 20 that she's actually his half-sister, but she cannot have children. Terah took Abram, Sarai, and Lot, and they left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but they don't make it there. They stop in a place that now is named after Haran, and they settle there. And while they are there, Terah dies. Why is this important? Why, Why mention this at all? Well, again, go back to verse number one of chapter 12. 
the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. In his defense before the Sanhedrin, Stephen recounts the story. Brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. The call of Abraham was, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. And it would seem that he did, in fact, leave his country, and he did leave his people, but he didn't leave his father's household. Why is this important? Well, Joshua, in his farewell speech, to the children of Israel before he died, said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshiped other gods. God had told Abram, leave, and I'm gonna show you where you're going to go. And he kind of does, but he kind of doesn't. He doesn't leave his father's household someone who worshiped other gods. Abram was raised in a pagan environment. And we might, and I've gone back and forth just in my own study and thinking on this, did Abram obey God or didn't he? I mean, he left his country, left his people, but he didn't leave his father's household. Um, Is it a lack of faith? Is it a lack of obedience? Um, We're not told that. What we are told is that he had been called and that he did obey. The second thing to consider is that the story of redemption, like that of creation, begins with God speaking. God says to Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. All that Abraham had to do was to obey what God had said. But it's not that simple, is it? Abram had to give up what he knew for what he did not know. He had to give up the known for the unknown. I think that's a frightening thing to consider. In Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. It's really quite remarkable. It begins with God speaking. By the way, Abraham's part is singular, okay? Um, Go, you know, leave your country, your people, your dad's household, okay? And go to the place. God's part is actually more involved. Look, if you would, at verses two and three. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The Lord makes a series of promises, at least five I wills we hear here. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. 
You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I will bless all peoples on the earth through you. The thing to consider about this promise is that Abraham, at this point Abram, did not live to see most of these promises fulfilled. God made five promises, and you might say that God, in fact, did bless him, and he blessed those who blessed him and cursed those who cursed him. But a great nation, all nations on the earth would be blessed for him. He did not live to see this, but he obeyed. There's the issue of Abram's age. Look at verse number four. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. For the Lord's part, Abram hardly seems like a good prospect for starting the human race all over again. He hardly seems like a good prospect for the solution to the problem of evil. He's going to be the foundation of a great nation. This is a man who's 75 years old and he has a wife who is barren, who is childless. For Abraham's part, how would any of the Lord's promises be fulfilled? How is this even possible? But he goes. Look at verse number five. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem, that time the Canaanites were in the land. So he does go. He does what the Lord says. He leaves Haran. He brings his wife and his nephew and all his possessions. The indication seems to be that while they were in Haran, the promises that God had made to him were already beginning to be fulfilled, that he had blessed him, he had prospered, and now he travels in the, must have been a large caravan, and he goes to Canaan. How long the journey took, what route they took, what happened on the journey, I would love to know, but we're not told. We're simply told that he went, and he arrived at Shechem. And what happens there? Verses 7 and 8. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. We are told that the Lord appeared to Abram. If you know the Bible, this may not strike you as a very unusual event, but this is the first time in Genesis that we are told that the Lord appeared to someone beyond Adam and Eve in the garden. After the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, this is the first time God appears. He speaks to people, but this is the first time he appears to anyone. And we're not sure what, that, what shape that took. Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it a, a physical presence, a visible presence? We're simply not told. But God appears to him. And even though the Canaanites, it's their territory, the Lord appears to him and says, listen, your descendants will have this land. This will be theirs. 
So Abram built an altar there. It is in response to God's appearance and God making a promise. The Lord takes the initiative and Abram responds in worship. He builds an altar, implied is the sacrificing of animals, and he calls on the name of the Lord. We've seen this many times in the past, but it is the same way with prayer. Prayer is a conversation which God initiates. We oftentimes think that we are the ones who have to cajole him, we have to yell at him, we have to somehow get his attention. No, no, he begins the conversation. He speaks first and we respond in prayer. He may speak through our circumstances, through his word, through each other, but God begins the conversation. We're given some geographical information here, by the way. Um, where he first stops is uh, in central Canaan, where Shechem is. Um, Shechem, by the way, is between the two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. You know, if you recall, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and they went there, and one is the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing, and there they had to promise to obey God. Um, but even before we get to that, Shechem is important. It is a place where Jacob actually bought a piece of land. It is a place where Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped and her brothers took their revenge on the people of Shechem. The covenant is renewed there after they come across the Jordan River. It's designated as one of the six cities of refuge and so it is a city of the Levites. Joseph was buried there and the ten tribes, when they rejected, when they tore away from Judah and, and Benjamin, it is at Shechem that they meet, and they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to be a separate people ourselves. Becomes an important place. And then Bethel. Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. Um, it's where Jacob had his dream of the ladder going up to heaven. And in fact, he called the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then verse number nine, our last verse today. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is the southern part of Palestine, which will be given uh, to Israel. So here we are. This is the beginning of the story of Abraham, who was Abram at this point, And we will get to the name change later on. The man of faith, the father of us all, God's friend. And here at the beginning of the story, several things stand out, at least to me. First of all, the calling of Abraham marked the third beginning in the book of Genesis. As I said, the first is the creation of the world, the creation of the human race in Adam. The second is the new beginning of the human race in Noah and his sons. And the third is the beginning of the chosen people of God in Abraham. In each case, I find it striking that it is a small beginning Adam and Eve, husband and wife. Noah, his wife and his three sons and their wives. Eight people. Now a 75-year-old man with his barren wife. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the way we would want things to begin. I think we would prefer something big, a crowd, a lot of people, a clan at least. But yeah, a lot of people, not just some 75-year-old guy and his wife. 
And yet this is how God begins, with small things. Something deeply dissatisfying and unsatisfying to us about this. This is how God does things. The second thing is that God initiated this whole story. He is the one who initiates. He called Abram. He created Adam and Eve. He instructed Noah to build the ark and to get the animals together and to take them in. And it is, by the way, if you know the story, God is the one who closes the door once Noah and his family have gone in. God is the one who initiates the action. As I said earlier, we were reminded of this most in prayer, that God begins the conversation. Question is, are we listening? As we read his word, as we go through life, the various circumstances, perhaps even in fellowship, as we speak to one another, we are reminded of things and we respond in prayer. It's a radically different way of looking at prayer than I think what most of us are more comfortable with. We would prefer to think that we are the ones who begin the conversation and God must respond to us. No, he begins and we respond to him. The third thing to consider is that Abram did not know where he was going. As I said earlier, he was called to exchange the known for the unknown. He knows his country, he knows his people, he knows his dad's household, okay? And he's told to leave those things he knows and to go someplace that he does not know, to live among among people he does not know, and to be quite apart from his father's household. He was to go to a place that the Lord would show him. The part of the quote for our meditation last week dealt with this, and I want to read it to you. We don't know what a new year brings. We have never passed this way before, but we don't have to know where we are going. Abraham went out. He didn't know where he was going. He marched under sealed orders. Had Abraham known where he was going, it would have put his eyes on the destination. So where did he keep his eyes? On God. God may keep you in the dark so that you'll keep your eyes on him. And Abram obeyed God. Let me read to you from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. This is Abraham, and this is someone 
whose life we will be studying the Lord willing in the next few weeks. But the last thing to consider in this story is that after each of the three appearances of evil, there is grace. Adam and Eve sinned, and God told them, the day you eat of this fruit, you're going to die. And yet in his grace, they were separated from him, but they did not physically die. In his grace, even though he drove them from the garden, he covered them with animal skins, did not destroy them. And then the story of Noah, the human race is wicked all the time. That's all they think about is doing something that is wrong. And God judges them, just as he did Adam and Eve. But there is grace because he spares Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. And then the third appearance is Babel. And God judges them for their arrogance by confusing their speech and scattering them over the planet. Where is the grace? There is grace for Adam and Eve. There is grace in Noah and his wife and his family. Where is the grace here? It's Abram. That's the grace. God has not given up on the human race. And he starts in a way that seems so unusual, so strange. A 75-year-old man with a barren wife, and God's like, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. Yeah, how is that going to happen? I I just don't see that happening. But Abraham believed God. He obeyed him, and he went. He left what he knew, and he went to what he did not yet know. And I think there is something for us to learn there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for Scripture, and though it does not tell us many things we would dearly like to know, it tells us what we need to know. Here at the beginning of Scripture, we find your grace in the face of sin, in the face of wickedness, in the face of arrogance. You are gracious. but perhaps not in a way that we would expect. People in a boat calling a 75-year-old man and his barren wife, but you are gracious. You know precisely what you're doing. If, in fact, you had told Abram where he was going, then his mind would have been on the destination. Instead, his, his vision was fixed on you who would lead him to the place he was to go. You are the God of all grace. How easily we forget that. How soon we think that somehow you owe us, that we're pretty good people. It's the same with prayer. We think that we begin this whole conversation, this whole dialogue, 
and forget so quickly that you are the one who began speaking. From creation to hear the beginning of redemption, you call Abraham. And you make promises, promise after promise. And he believed you. He was the father of our faith. We are his children. He was your friend. May we learn from his example as we struggle with the unknown. We are more comfortable with what we think we know. May we look to him as his and his example of faith and realize that you, in fact, are speaking to us through our circumstances, through one another, through your word. And we are to obey. Like Abram, by your grace, we head into the unknown, trusting you. I thank you for bringing us together today this second Sunday of a new year. We do not know what lies ahead, but you do. By your grace, may we walk in faith, knowing that you know what is best. We thank you for your love, which you showed to us supremely in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Again, thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.